Philippians chapter 4. This is a second to last sermon in our Philippian sermon series. I hope you guys have enjoyed our time in this book. Uh, we have, um, you know, we could have been slower in going about it, but I pray that it's been uh, just uh, something that's really ministered to you this morning. So, um, or this, this past, this is week number 10, I think we're in. So, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Jesus, it is in silence that we often hear from you, and our world is um, so loud, um, such a busy world, so many things being shoved in our ears, and how easy it is to just not take a few breaths and just to sit and listen to you. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who may be hurting this morning, Lord, who may have been carrying, walking in these doors, carrying burdens, Lord. Um, I pray this would be a day that they could just have an honest conversation with you, with another person here, and just to uh, look at that head on and and be able to uh, just wrestle with it, Lord, Um, that you would free them from that burden, Lord, that you would give them comfort, Give them peace. Give them uh, love through your people. Lord, we pray for our, our community, Lord, as we're still navigating this, this pandemic, Lord. We um, just pray for knowledge as a church. How can we serve our community in these very unique times? We think of our election season, and just week to week, there seems to be just uh, so many new reasons to be at each other's throats and to be in division. Lord, we pray for grace for our nation, Lord. Pray for our leaders who um, you ask us, Lord, to, to lift them up before you, Lord. You install uh, by uh, your sovereign will whom you do, Lord, and we entrust that to you and ask that you would give our leaders wisdom. Um, guide them, Jesus, in the ways that are true and just and, and righteous. And Lord, as we look into these words this morning, Lord, we pray that Uh, We would have open ears to listen to you, Jesus. 
we would have soft hearts to receive from your word what you have for us this morning. We love you so much, Jesus. We love you so much. Please meet us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning, we are going to be talking about church conflict, something that uh, rarely happens these days. And we're going to be looking at something that I think what Paul is doing here is kind of addressing, in an interesting manner, uh, the culture that conflict within God's church takes place in, right? How do you address the surroundings? Because it's inevitable that conflict will come up. There's no church in existence that's never known conflict. And so it's not a matter of just if, it's a matter of when, but what can our work be? And I think Paul is kind of the pastor here as he's trying to shepherd this church. He, he addresses the surrounding circumstances that the conflict takes place in. It says if, if the surrounding circumstances and health of the church is there, when the conflict comes up, maybe it can be dealt with in a healthy manner. And so far from Paul having ADD moments, which honestly, I had to really wrestle thinking like, Paul really just, man, this is so ADD. Like, I don't know what's the connecting points here. I really think what he's trying to address here is, is, is the, the surrounding environment of the Church of Philippi to say, you guys got to, this conflict has really seeped itself into many different areas in this church, and we got to address this environment here because when conflict comes and it's happening between these two prominent women in the church, um, these things have to be right in order for you to be able to deal with this correctly. Because whenever you see division, more than likely, you will find a trail of other issues at hand. This is because of division that, be, that can become so sharp as to actually divide people, even divide a church. Even broader speaking, divide families, divide nations. Somewhere you're going to find some messiness. You're going to find some sin somewhere. And more than likely, within all parties involved, probably some sort of arrogance and pride will be lurking somewhere dotted throughout the trail of wreckage. And here's the overarching uh, arching narrative that will guide our time today. There's two women, prominent members of the church, and more than likely two of its prominent leaders, as Paul refers to them. Um, they are divided. Their names, of, their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And what are they fighting over? We don't really know. But their division apparently was, was really well known, probably due to their role in the church, and Paul thought it was such a serious situation as to actually single it out from, a, from afar and address it via letter for the whole church to read, right? I've probably was a little humbling experience for these two women, I would assume. Division in churches is nasty business. As a new pastor here at Emmanuel, as we uh, move forward here in addressing any potential issues that may lie. There's always going to be issues that lie in churches and in our church. We want to learn how to walk through those things here and be honest about them in Emmanuel. Um, but we also want to be honest about our current kind of position here at Emmanuel. We're, how we got to this stage of, of kind of um, one of decline and now kind of a blank slate of saying, Lord, uh, you, what, what would you have with our church? And this, see this new chapter season of revitalization and this, this, this kind of uh, our need of fresh direction, our need of new foundations and new life. Like most churches, divisions are it's a part of this church's story as well to varying degrees. Various issues, some of you who are long-term members would know, you know what I'm talking about, reach 
reaches all the way back to about 50 years ago to even more recent years. And um, there's been a handful of divisions in Emmanuel's history. It's led to this group of people leave and this group of people go over there. This is not really only an Emmanuel problem. As I'm saying, uh, any church in existence has been through these things. It's because disagreement is a human problem. Our heart doesn't agree with itself, does it not? And so we can expect that division disagreement will surface when humans and people spend time together. Eventually, it's going to happen. Yet what surrounds division is the culture available to us to guide us through that division. Conflicts come always. Everyone here has been in conflict before. Dating relationships, coworkers, family, parents, siblings, friends, and marriages. But the question is not so much the division or disagreement that will happen, but the question is, What is the surrounding culture that will guide those through that conflict, through that disagreement? How will it be addressed when it comes? Are we able to kind of prime ourselves in a spiritually healthy church, knowing that when the good times and also the hard times come, that we're kind of ready to deal with it in a healthy, Jesus-centered manner? Because division is human, and I believe that um, how we, we work through it is one of the biggest indicators of spiritual health and maturity is how one or a group of people respond to conflict. Because conflict is not easy, right? And it, it can surface within you some pretty nasty stuff that you may not even be aware of until that conflict comes because it's uncomfortable, because things may be slipping out of your control or maybe even yourself There's some exposing being done to some of your weaknesses, and you're like, no, I don't want this stuff to be shown or talked about or cause problems, and it can be rough. But it's one of the first indicators is just how, how healthy are you in Christ? How will you respond to this? Will you respond in humility if you are at fault? Or if a brother or sister is at fault, will you be gentle and reasonable in the conflict? Or will you go just all-out war against them and just talking nasty stuff behind their back to as many people as you can to take them down? I mean, I've seen all this stuff. I'm sure you have as well. How will you respond to conflict? That is going to be one of the biggest indicators to the, the church's health and also to our individual health. So here's a little roadmap today. I think Paul's addressing all these things in this, in this, in this passage. It's the conflict between Iodia and Syntyche. Moving forward in conflict, in the reality of the Lord's presence, and three, embracing the true good and beautiful things that are found in heaven. So let's work through this in chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. There's some interesting things happening in the original language here. True companion is actually, it says, yoke fellow. And and a lot of people believe Paul is addressing somebody named Saizgus, which literally means true yoke fellow, the person who is bearing the yoke. And he's saying, you, I need you to kind of step in here and be like, whoa, guys, let's talk this through. Um, So what are they fighting about? We don't know. Yet I'm going to go out on an educated limb and, and kind of speak broadly here and look at the letter as a whole and knowing that Paul has been dealing with things like pride in form of status, pride in citizenship and circling around the Jesus kind of master story of saying Jesus had even more than you ever had, but he set those things aside for the sake of us. 
right? As he's addressing all these things and how also you look at other scriptures like in James 4 and elsewhere that um, seem to repeat themes of anxiety while addressing things like pride, as we see in James 4, um, and prayer especially, this conflict probably is something around some of the topics we've seen throughout this book, which is pride, but we don't really know to what degree this exactly is. But I think I'm safe in saying that there's some arrogance or pride wrapped in this because every conflict has arrogance or pride wrapped up in it, right? Um, all division has some element of that. One side thinks it's right, while the other one says, no, I'm, I'm the one who's actually in the right, and then you start clashing. As a side note for anyone who may struggle with women in, in prominent roles in the church, Paul refers to these two women as his co-workers, or actually his equals, he says, in gospel ministry along with Clement and some other people. These were visible ministers of the gospel. <clears throat> Paul didn't need to introduce who they were because everybody know, knew who they were, right? And he addresses their division. He entreats someone um, called, like I said, a yoke fellow or Sizgus. Okay, name my first, my, my next kid's Sizegus. That's a good name. He's addressing someone to be kind of the mediator to jump in here. So, um, because we know that every conflict has a host of issues, conflict can only truly be dealt with in a healthy relational culture. On a national level, right now, we just simply are ill equipped as a nation to deal with conflict because I do believe we are witnessing a collapse of culture in many ways in our nation. Our modern culture is one of poison, one of hostility, as most of our national conversations is done behind Twitter avatars and no longer face-to-face -face where empathy can be had from just basic facial recognition and body postures and things when there's conflict, but rather we can boldly get behind a keyboard and do, 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 you know, and this is how our national conflicts are resolved or not resolved, or how they're attempted to be dealt with. And we know that it's only increasing our separation as a nation when those basic social cues are missing, the humanness of just face-to-face -face relationships. Are, our, our nation is struggling right now in knowing how to deal with conflict. All the studies show that social media legitimately creates the opposite of community. All the experts know it. Everything about it is only encircled around conflict. Think about it. Hundreds of news headlines fills our phones and screens on a 24-hour basis. For you to be drawn into one, to click on it in the sea of headlines, you must see something that sticks out above the rest. And thus, news companies compete with one another, making things a little more extreme, a little more intense to get you to say, whoa, that sounds crazier than the rest. Let me click on that. And on top of the ever-increasing extreme-worded clickbait headlines, algorithms... All right, start providing you with things that they think you'll agree with that you'll click on, right? And so you get stuck in this echo chamber of clicking around with things you know you already agree with. It just makes you even more hyped up and angry. So you keep clicking and you get stuck in this, this never-ending world where you're not learning anything new. You're just continually agreeing with yourself and you're getting madder and madder at people who don't agree with you, right? And I, I tested this. Google, I, I, my buddy had a computer. I had a computer. We, we searched the same phrase and our computers had different results because Google was tracking what I th they, think, they think I'll click on, tracking what they think he will click on. We had different results. This is the world that we live in right now. It's not information transfer and idea sharing. is a place of villainizing those who don't agree with you and encircling you in a world where you will constantly just click on the things that you agree with. Give it a decade of all this craziness I'm talking about. Throw in the blender of a pandemic and social unrest and you have 2020. 
the year of continual unresolved conflict and anger, the year of chaos that no one knows how to deal with except to buckle down and fight. Dig your, hand, dig your, 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 your feet in the sand and just and, and buck up and fight even more. You and I are left with a lack of skills to deal with conflict as, even, as individuals, as a nation, but also this can impact the church. What do you do when someone actually disagrees with you? What if I told you that I don't exactly identify in this political party or this political party, the only two options that we have? If I say I don't really identify as a Republican or a Democrat, I'll prove to you how uh, poisonous our culture is because you may think, well, apparently he must just endorse abortion. It's like, well, I, I, I don't. Well, apparently he must be a cultural Marxist. Well, no, I'm not that either. But we, we, we drill these boxes that says you have to be all in over here if you believe this stuff. You have to be all in over here if you believe this. There's no middle ground of conversation. It's just, ugh, ugh. And we have to learn to get past this, learn how to have conversations with one another. But let's take all this silliness on the church level, all right? On a church level. We are in a time of revitalization, we must realize that in our hundred, Emmanuel is 160 or so years old, okay? Amazing ministry and legacy uh, of stories of just Jesus' gospel work that's been done here in the city of Wilmington through Emmanuel. You should see some of the pictures that are floating around the building here. I have a bunch in my office of just the old facility we had in Delaware Ave and just all the newspaper clippings of what Jesus was doing here. It was really amazing stuff that God did here, right? If the church lifted the heel, it's healed. The front page of the city newspaper would talk about Emmanuel's foot being lifted up. Like it was really, we were really that kind of in the center of uh, uh, kind of Christianity here in the city. And then in the 70s, there was some turmoil in the movement that we became known as the Jesus People Movement. There was a, a charismatic renewal hitting various denominations. Even the Catholics were affected. If you're old enough, you, you know what I'm talking about. The whole nation was affected. The result here at Emmanuel was a church split, giving birth to Brandywine Baptist in North Wilmington, who actually was able to spend time with the pastor last week. And over throughout the years, our, our church... Um, just like really any other church, right? We've experienced seasons of growth and struggle, right? And a handful of years ago was really shaken to our core, leaving us with a bit of a kind of a blank slate that we're facing right now of revitalization in a new chapter of almost uh, uh, kind of like, yeah, a, a new beginnings here at Emmanuel. Now, many historic churches go through these sorts of things. It's almost guaranteed that if a church survives over a century, they'll face something like Emmanuel has faced. It's almost guaranteed, right? But why do I mention all these things? Because if we are to move forward, right, and some of you uh, have been here for a very long time, these things I'm talking about, they are conflicts, right? Uh, every church's story will have conflict wrapped up in it. And I guess a part of me is convinced as I'm here, I'm 90 days in, you know, it's like I see this passage about conflict, these two women go and edit. And my question is, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I would be remiss not to mention it, right? Um, do you have unresolved conflict if you've been here for a long time towards this church, towards people who used to be here, towards people who have maybe left here? Maybe not. Maybe God has brought healing. You're just like, I'm ready to run. Let's just, let's see ministry happen, new beginnings. I'm on board. And maybe you're like, I, I want to be there, but I kind of feel like I'm stuck where Euodia and Syntyche was, was wrestling. And there's something maybe still there that I thought I've wrestled with, but if I'm honest, there's something still there. And maybe you're new sitting here thinking, I have no clue what he's talking about. I think all the above might be in this room. 
And I think we can take a text like this and use it not to really just find resolution to all these things immediately this morning, right? But we need to ask, how do we biblically deal with conflict? Here's a phrase you'll see me say continually in the oncoming months. If we don't humble ourselves as Christians, especially in the realm of conflict or as a church, and if we do not continually remain in a humble spot, not just now, but forever, knowing that there will always be some imperfection in this church and in every other church, and if we don't find the the foundational block of humility, when that conflict comes, we're not going to be able to handle it well. And I'm telling you that we cannot expect to receive blessings from the Lord if humility is not the very foundational block that we build on here at Emmanuel. If we don't do this, I'm telling you, we will be bucking up against God's blessing on Emmanuel. Yodia and Syntyche probably were not feeling very blessed in their conflict. Because the scripture is clear that God exalts the humble. Because he says it does. The Bible says it. James 4.10 is right there. He will exalt the humble. And when we decrease, he increases. John chapter 2. Dealing well with conflict as Christians is really learning how to be honest with your own shortcomings, to be gracious towards the other party if they're in the air, while still being open and honest in your communication to them. Even when parties just disagree and probably won't ever be able to agree, and we'll see how that happened even in Paul's story. I think we can argue that, unbeknown to our current world, maybe the church can be an example of this, right? It's available to us to walk in unity even in the midst of disagreement. Disagreement does not necessarily have to mean conflict. So if you can relate to anything I just said, I would absolutely love to have all my nights and days full of sitting with you all, dealing with whatever potential conflict that may be still sitting inside of you. Pack my schedule out. Let me drive to your homes. I would love to be walking with you through these things if they still exist. And maybe it's nothing to do with Emmanuel and you have conflict in other areas of your life that you need desperately to face. And the invitation is still open, right? The other elders would be more than happy to join me as well. We want to deal with these things and not leave anything unresolved here. So as we proceed here, Let's look at what Paul had to say in terms of the kind of surrounding environment that is necessary within a church body to deal with conflict. What does that culture look like? He begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not enough to say it once, because he says, again, if you're not listening, if you're asleep, if you've dozed off on me here, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of your translations may say gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I find it pretty amazing that Paul doesn't go into details about the conflict. Rather, he goes right to one of the ways which we can find a healthy mode or healthy posture to face conflict, which is that of celebration. Rejoice is like a Christianese word. You don't really say, I rejoiced yesterday. I rejoiced in my kid's birthday. No, we celebrated my kid's birthday party. That's what, you know, we, 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 the word celebrate is in a vernacular more than rejoice. And so Paul is really saying, guys, celebrate the things that are worthy of celebrating. Even in the midst of this conflict, there's still, there's still things to celebrate, church. So rejoice, celebrate. And where was Paul when he wrote this? 
He was in prison, right? And we can assume here that this church was lacking in their celebration, lacking in their joy, as joy has been a major theme throughout Philippians. There's a conflict here. And Paul's saying, guys, I'm in jail right now, and I'm saying celebrate, rejoice. Like, I'm actually pretty, I'm okay over here. Like, I'm content. I'm still in the mode of thanksgiving, and why aren't you guys? Like, why can't you find celebration right now? Right? He's gently kind of throwing himself out there saying, like, it's possible, guys, to find celebration in an attitude of thanksgiving, even in the midst of what you're going through, even in the midst of this conflict. It's still possible, because I got it, is I'm in the midst of a crazy conflict, too. We'll hear more about that next week. As a church, we have a lot to celebrate, a lot to be thankful for. And one of the quickest ways to resolve bitterness is thanksgiving. Did you know that even in a pandemic, we still have much to be thankful for? And we'll again talk more about that next week. Secondly, he mentions gentleness. Be reasonable, be gentle. In fact, he says, be known as people who are gentle. There is nothing more humbling than being gentle towards someone who doesn't deserve to be gentle towards. Learning to bite your tongue and learning to even speak truth in gentleness and in love when you just want to lash out and feel like you were completely vindicated for doing so. No, be known for being reasonable. Be gentle. I sat with a coffee shop yesterday with somebody who, um, there's a lot of things that, uh, or two days ago, that we didn't agree with at all. We just started talking it was the most reasonable conversation. And I was like, this was great. We agree on nothing. But you know how reasonable this conversation was? The individual was like, yeah, this is great. Do it again. Be reasonable. Be gentle. Right? Thankfully, our Lord Jesus was gentle and reasonable to us when we did not deserve it. Can I get an amen? Then Paul reminds them of their closeness with God. He is at hand. He's here right now. His presence is right among us. And then he goes to anxiety. And at this point, you're thinking, all right, so deal with conflict, celebrate, be reasonable. God is here. Don't be anxious. And it's like, all right, this really is ADD, Paul. You'll get lost here. You fall off the map. Let's get back on target. But consider this. With people in conflict, do you often see a spirit of thanksgiving? Do you often see reasonableness? When conflict happens, our arguments often opened up with prayers. Say, hey, before we start arguing, we work this out and start yelling at one another. Can we stop and pray before we engage this conflict? Do you often see conflict dealt without either party walking away carrying a heavy load of anxiety afterwards? I've never fought with anyone and walked away feeling like, oh, I just feel blessed. That was great. Can't wait to look at the rest of my day after that argument and that fight. I just feel so blessed. Right? That doesn't happen, right? You're thinking like, man, I was too strong there. I shouldn't have said that. I should have been more bold and said this. Oh, I just feel icky. I feel icky. It's, it's, it's unresolved and I feel icky. You see how these verses are kind of addressing the culture that should surround a church, a healthy, Jesus-centered culture that says when conflict pops up, here are the things that will help you walk through it. I'll say it again, conflict is an enemy. It was not part of God's original design in this earth. It was not part of Eden originally. We're the ones who introduced conflict into this world when we try to take the reins of our human existence uh, independently from God to say, we're going to figure this out on our own. And God said, you, you're, you're going to introduce death if you take such independence 
We're the ones who brought conflict in. It is part of the enemy. But your spiritual journey and your maturity in Christ will show in how you deal with that conflict. Finding things to be thankful for, even with that unresolved tension. Be reasonable and be gentle in that conflict. Feel your closeness to the Lord because He is close to you. Let that be an aspect of fear. That's an unpopular thing to preach on today is to be fearful of God. But let His presence put you in kind of fear. He is with you. He is there with you. And He is trying to fill you to mirror His Son. And He knows the motivations of your heart. He knows where you stand and the bitterness that's inside of you or the lack thereof. He knows it. And sometimes a good old-fashioned just awareness of God's presence should really help bring our heart into repentance to say, God, I, I know you see the ickiness inside of me that nobody else sees. And oftentimes we just, we don't let that hit us as we should. But his presence is one also of joy and thanksgiving because he's a gracious God that says, I see who you are, but all you have to do is say, I'm sorry. And I want to equip you to be able to step forward here. And if you have anxiety within you, any anxiety about these things, about whatever conflict or tension may be in your life, the question would be why? Anxiety is a major symptom of pride. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. Anxiety is one of the first signs of pride because pride uh, is pride that whatever conflict you are facing is solely up to you to resolve. Pride that says, I got this. I can fix this on my own. And anxiety is the offspring of the insecurities of your own efforts and your own labor to fix something that you probably have already screwed up. Anxiety reveals a fear that you're losing control of the desired outcome. Oftentimes, the only way to avoid anxiety, if you don't deal with it, is just to avoid the conflict and drop it all together and walk away from it. Paul directs the church to make requests to God, supplication and prayer, with a promise of peace to follow. Now, these are these like Christian coffee cup verses. We probably have somewhere in all of our homes something with these verses on it, right? Bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets and all these things. Because they're beautiful words, right? I mean, in times when life is crazy and tension-filled, like who doesn't go to this, these verses and say, oh man, I need peace right now. Where is this peace, Lord? Give me peace. Like, these are beautiful verses. But don't let their familiarity rob you here of the context and also just of their, of their impact and what they should have, right? When you ask God for something, if you really, really mean it, prayer can be the most humbling activity available to us. Prayer is intended for you to relinquish control and hand it over to God. God is not some genie saying, God, I really want this. And so you said that if I ask, I get, I get what I want. So I want to just hopefully use you to get what I want. That is not how prayer works. Because prayer should be the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is almost if you are praying to yourself in a way. And prayer to Jesus relieves us of anxiety. Casting all of the tension and the conflict and the worries on him, on his sovereignty, and on his outcome, and not your own. Prayer, my friends, is one of the ultimate acts of humility. Maybe it's just me because I'm a sinner, but I have often found myself not wanting to pray 
about a particular situation, creating little convenient habits of like roadblocks in my brain and mind. And sometimes I even spiritualize those roadblocks as reasons to not really face it, not to actually just pray and go before God. Because I know what's going to happen if I do it. If I go before God with that stuff, I know that I'm going to be exposed to be even more of a sinner than I thought right? It's sort of exposed that I have idolatry, that I have some kind of just this desire that I, I want above all else, and I'm not willing to just let it go, right? Or I just, I, that I want to win this argument or want my way in this certain thing. I'm just like conveniently finding ways to sidestep like real prayer, like not yet, no, not yet, not yet. And God is like, stop, bow before me, pray, give it to me. You've got to be humbled right now. Maybe that's only me. Maybe you haven't done that. I don't know. The peace of God that follows, the peace of God that follows is not a guaranteed peace that whatever conflict you're in will somehow be resolved. That's not the peace we're talking about. It's not a guaranteed outcome to say, well, the peace comes because God's going to wipe away the conflict. No. The peace comes when you're facing the bitterness that dwells within you, right? The peace comes that says living this human life is messy. There is no guarantee of tomorrow, but there is a guarantee of God's providence and his goodness, even in its mysteries, that I have no other hope in this human life but to cast myself on. There's no other hope that says the resurrection was real and there's new life coming for this world and it's come for me now that he is listening to my prayers and he is a good God who is actually in control. There is no other hope that I know of in this life than to say, God, you, 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 you got to take this and I got to trust that you're doing something with this. Because I can't do this on my own. I can't repair this on my own. One of the most amazing stories in Scripture that I absolutely love is when Jesus, after receiving the cat of nine tails and flogging, he's, he, he's standing there. He has this tattered, bloodied, purple robe mocking his royalty and a crown of thorns that was shoved on his head. He's probably barely standing, right? Barely can find the breath, the strength to stand before Pilate's. And Pilate starts hearing some of these accusations against him, and Pilate kind of is like, who is this guy? And he's like, Jesus, where did you, you come from? And Jesus stands there not saying anything. And you can see Pilate gets frustrated. He goes, maybe you forgot who I am, Jesus. Maybe you don't know that I have the authority to let you go here. You should probably talk to me. I have the authority to crucify you or the authority to let you go. And Jesus looks up, I'm sure very calmly and quietly tells him, you don't have any authority except what has been given to you in this moment, quietly saying, Pilate, I'm actually the one calling the shots, right? He wasn't defending himself. He wasn't freaking out. He was confident in God, even in the most humiliating moment of weakness before a crowd as a bloody nest, probably almost completely naked, being mocked in this, this kingly garments that was actually one of pain, of thorns, and the bloody, and he's saying, I'm actually calling the shots, Pilate, and I'm in, I'm in charge here, not you. That's the confidence available to us, right? And Christ is our example of that conflict. As you cast your cares over to God, oftentimes he will ask you to take the humble road, even absorbing some punches and kicks along the way that you didn't deserve, only if it means forgiveness can be extended, even if it makes you look bad as you rely on God to bring healing and not on yourself. This is the example of Christ, is it not? Through Isaiah in chapter 48, verse 18, God is imploring with Israel. He says, oh, if you just would have listened to me, then your peace would have been like a river, ever flowing 
and its stream of confidence before me in this messy life? Will you listen to God this morning? Is there anger against someone in your heart? Do you carry deep cares and anxiety and worries that you have not released that you were just clinging to with all of your heart? Peace is available to you as soon as you're willing to stop and realize that you are not the one in control of your life. You are not the one running the show. Jesus Christ has carved out the path of access to God, to the God of the universe, by his death, burial, and resurrection. And maybe you're the one that's like Pilate this morning, thinking that you really are calling the shots. You need Jesus to look you in the eye and say, no, you aren't. I'm the one calling the shots. Church, release this burden. If it's you this morning, release it from your shoulders and accept the peace of God by casting your anxieties on him. We continue on. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As we close, Paul addresses the things that are true, good, and beautiful. Things that are truthful, things that are honorable, things of justice and purity, things that are lovely and commendable and excellent, worthy of praise. These things are the things to think about. Paul addresses himself as an example of one who has tried, at least, to embrace these things. All these things we mentioned thus far have been mostly negative. When conflict arises, especially deep and long-lasting conflict, an aura or a cloud of oppression and kind of sadness can linger. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. But I think what Paul is doing is trying to encourage a culture of kind of, honestly, heavenly positivity among the church that may have been negatively influenced by these two sisters and their conflict. Yes, it may sound like I just said that Paul is, in essence, saying, I'm sending positive thoughts your way. It's not really what I'm saying. It may have sounded like that. I mean, modern psychology does show that in the midst of hard situations, positive thinking can really alter someone's mind and hearts as they have to face what is before them, better equipping them to do so. But Paul is not sending us, you know, uh, positive thoughts, positive vibes our way. It's not really what he's doing here. The things that are true, good, and beautiful that he mentioned, they are things that are reminiscent of heaven, Things that are reminiscent of the life of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth that he is ushering into this world that will come soon, we pray, Lord Jesus. Paul's addressing the culture of the church almost as if he's saying, guys, there's been some conflict that the church has had larger impacts on your thanksgiving, on your anxiety, on your prayers. Have you forgot to set your minds on earthly things in heaven? Because surely those could have guided you in better ways. Have you forgot to ensure that you are looking to these beautiful things of justice and purity and excellence and praiseworthy things? Did you know that when we practice looking at these things that God is going to be with you? So as we close, I want to address some things on the personal level and on the church level. Personally, and these two intertwine, if there's unresolved conflict in your life, if, there, if, if there's a, uh, is there a situation that is full of tension that you carry this anxiety about, are you the one in the way? Be careful, though, as you tackle this uh, by simply praying. Sometimes uh, praying can give us false security and false peace if we don't keep a close watch in our hearts. Timothy Keller is quoted as saying, if God does not have our highest allegiance, 
we will pray to try and get the things that have our highest allegiance. Did you catch that? In other words, Jesus must be your first and foremost king. He must be your highest Lord, and if he is not, you may think God is means to an end to get something that you want. Things that may have your highest allegiance that belong to God, but really, honestly, those things are usually found to be you, yourself. Is there unapproached conflict in your life? On the church level, Emmanuel, any church can easily embrace the high mountain peaks of blessing in its story. Emmanuel has plenty of that. Most churches have those seasons of just celebration and joy and high, high times, the mountaintop experiences. But what proves the humility of the church, of a church, is the ability to look back on not just the good events, but the ones that had conflict, the conflict-driven ones, the difficult ones, and say, yes, there has been hardship and conflict and trauma at Emmanuel. A church cannot move forward without a culture of knowing how to look back in a healthy manner. And I see Paul kind of doing that in this passage. Maybe if you're a longtime member here, you feel awkward right now. You're shuffling in your seat like, I don't want to talk about this. But Emmanuel has, we do have past warts and scars here. We are not to live in that as if that's our identity because it's not. But I'm fully convinced, or more and more convinced, that all of you have fully and spiritually, um, perhaps not all of you, uh, there may be some of you here this morning that have not really dealt with things that's happened here in Emmanuel within you because I, there feels like an uncomfortability in knowing how to even talk about it. If we can't ask how do we get here when we need to, not all the time, but when we need to, if we can't ask those questions, how can we move on? without accidentally winding up in the same spots in a future year that we are in now. A church that doesn't, a, a church, all churches that decline, uh, that doesn't happen in the vacuum. And unless we prayerfully look back and deal with these things, ensuring that there's a culture of knowing how to talk about them at minimum, especially the necessary structural components that may have contributed to the church's decline, unresolved conflict and issues, should we expect God's blessing? Paul was trying to be honest with this church at Philippi and this conflict that raged between these two and some of the greater impacts that had hit the church because of it. And I'm trying to do the same in the most gracious manner that I know how to make you feel comfortable if you are a longtime member here with interacting and talking about the good and the rough parts of Emmanuel's story and comfortable with our current reality that we are in need of revitalization. Karl Barth, the famous German theologian, had this to say. He said, without graves, there is no resurrection. We have to know how to look at those graves and hardships and to admit to them if we are to find new life in resurrection. To speak to the visitors and new people this morning, we need you because historic churches across our nation have found themselves in very similar places like this one. Seasons of a blessing, but seasons of hardship that leaves them uh, with kind of the blank slate saying, Lord Jesus, we've been here for so long, 160 years. We know you have more for us. What do you have for us? What will it take to see life and see flourishing here? 
We are thankful for these new people this morning. There's a handful of you out here. We need, your, we need you, your gifts, your prayers, your, your spiritual vitality, your community, your friendship, and maybe some of you that have no idea these stories I'm talking about. Maybe even some of you could be future leaders here at Emmanuel. That's the kind of stuff I get excited about because I love, uh, I've always wanted to be a part of a church revitalization because there's no better story than to see somebody come from struggle and almost decline to see brand new life be born because that is kind of the story of the gospel. It's all of our stories in Christ, is it not? But if you have unresolved conflict in your hearts, somewhere towards anyone here or towards the church in general or towards anyone who has left this church, please schedule time to sit with me, sit with one of your elders and, and talk through this. Even this morning, if there's conflict in your life, in your marriages or dating relationships or school or, or whatever it might be, don't walk out of this room without dealing with it. We're going to close in a song here. I want to offer myself and the other elders for prayer for you if, if this conflict is there inside of you. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pleading with you. Why wouldn't you deal with it? If it's you this morning, I felt so strong from the Holy Spirit this week to say this. Like, why wouldn't you face it if it is in your life? If there is somewhere in your life unresolved conflict, what is keeping you from looking at it? If there's arrogance in your heart and dealing with it, know that God is against arrogance. He has unleashed grace on you. Undeserved grace. Can you not unleash undeserved grace on yourself and on others? Jesus took the blame for sin that he did not commit. If the conflict has you in error, can you not humble yourselves to admit so? I'll share a brief story with you from Scripture as we close. Acts 15, famous story of Paul and Barnabas, two best friends who got in the conflict. After some days, Paul, and Bar Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in Acts 15 in every city that we proclaim the word of the Lord to and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and Pamphylia, and have not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So in essence, Paul said, I don't trust Mark. He betrayed, he abandoned me when I needed him most. Barnabas disagreed, so they separated. Two friends who had done so much ministry together. What often is not talked about, though, is in verse, a little verse in 2 Timothy 4, 11. Years later, we find Paul, an aged man, yet again in prison, alone only with Luke. Writing some last words to Timothy, he says, Hey, Timothy, I'm alone. Only Luke is with me. I would love for you to come. But when you come, could you bring Mark with you? Because he's useful for me in ministry. There was restoration between those two. Such things are beautiful. And I pray that we can embrace that through Christ this morning. Let us pray. Jesus, um, you can do uh, just the impossible, Lord. And as we are excited and look forward to just the blessings that is to come on Emmanuel, Lord, if there's anyone here that has anything they need to deal with, Lord, I pray that the altar could be opened up this morning for the Spirit to do the humbling work of facing it, Lord. I want to see knees bowed, Lord. I want to see people just crying out before you, Lord, just releasing these anxieties and cares and conflicts to you, Lord, confronting themselves, Lord, letting your Holy Spirit confront them, Lord. Would you please do a, a healing work, Lord, with those who need it this morning? 
We love you, Jesus. Thank you that you have carved the way for this in your own story, Lord, by taking all sorts of blame and, and sin that never belonged to you, that you may reconcile us back to the very God that we were estranged from. And you promise to be with us. You promise to never leave us, even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, as we uh, close today, may you uh, just bring healing to where there needs to be healing. We love you. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Let's rise to our feet. Stand.